Good morning, Alex and friends. I'm Grace. Today is Friday, January 5th, TH, 2024, and you're listening to Alex's News. Turning to the weather, Riverside is looking at a mild start to the new year, with today's high reaching 62.1 degrees and the evening cooling down to a low of 45.5. In today's top stories, a freshly released House report sheds light on foreign payments to former President Trump's businesses, triggering alarms over potential violations of the Constitution. Health officials are on high alert as a surge in respiratory illnesses follows the holiday season, with concerns mounting due to stagnating vaccination rates. And in a historic move, the U.S. Mint is introducing commemorative coins featuring Harriet Tubman, coinciding with increased calls to redesign the $20 bill. Stay with us for the full stories and more. We're leading this morning with a bombshell report that has just been released by House Democrats. To break down the details, we have our correspondent Ethan with us. Ethan, can you give us an overview of what this report is claiming? Absolutely, Grace. The report is based on the investigation by the House Oversight Committee and it documents a staggering $7.8 million in payments from at least 20 foreign governments to businesses owned by former President Donald Trump during his time in office. The countries named include China, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, among others. And Ethan, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there something in the Constitution that prohibits presidents from accepting money from foreign sources without Congress's approval? You're spot on, Grace. This is what's referred to as the Foreign Emoluments Clause. It's designed to prevent corruption and foreign influence. The report alleges that these payments violate that very clause. Now, what kind of evidence are we looking at? Where did this information come from? The evidence compiled in this report comes from thousands of business records turned over by Trump's accounting firm, Mazars USA. The Wall Street Journal, which has reviewed some of these documents, outlines that substantial expenditures occurred at Trump's properties in Washington, Las Vegas, and New York. All right, let's delve a little deeper into these payments. Which ones stand out to you? Most notably, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, which is state owned, paid $5.35 million in rent for space in Trump Tower. Then there's Saudi Arabia, which likely paid Trump-owned businesses at least $615,422. These are significant figures, and they represent just a portion of the total $7.8 million mentioned in the report. These are indeed large sums of money coming from foreign governments. Ethan, what do you believe are the potential implications or consequences of these findings? The concerns here are multifold. First, this could lead to potential legal challenges based on the emoluments clause. There's also the broader issue of how this might affect foreign policy decisions, with questions being raised about whether these payments could have influenced President Trump's decisions while in office. And I understand Trump did not divest from his businesses, is that correct? Exactly, Grace. Breaking from precedent, Trump maintained ownership of his business empire, handing over management to his adult sons. He had promised during his campaign to completely divest, but that did not occur. This decision was a subject of controversy and led to multiple congressional investigations. Can you tell us more about the investigation itself and how it was conducted? Sure. The investigation faced hurdles, including a lengthy court dispute that was settled only in 2022. Once settled, 
Mazars USA started providing the requested documents. But after the shift in control of the House, the new Republican majority has effectively halted the demand for more documentation, leaving many of Trump's business entities still shrouded in mystery. What could be the reason for that, Ethan? Well, some speculate that it might be politically motivated, aiming to protect the former president who is a leading figure in the Republican Party. Democrats claim that Mazars did not provide documentation on at least 80% of Trump's business dealings, indicating a significant gap in the available information. This is definitely a complex and revealing report. Ethan, thank you for digging into this story and providing such thorough analysis. My pleasure, Grace. It's certainly a story to watch as it develops. Indeed, we will keep our viewers updated. Stay with us. After the break, we have more on story two of three. We're seeing a troublesome trend in public health after the holiday season, with respiratory illnesses skyrocketing throughout the U.S. To discuss this alarming situation, we have our health correspondent Chloe with us today. Chloe, can you give us an overview of what's happening right now? Certainly, Grace. Multiple outlets, including NPR, are reporting that we are experiencing a significant rise in cases of respiratory syncytial virus, COVID-19, and the flu. The situation in Kentucky is particularly concerning, with soaring influenza cases and hospitalizations. And correspondingly, vaccination rates are worryingly low. Low vaccination rates are always a cause for concern. Just how low are these rates currently? To put it into perspective, less than half of the population in Kentucky has received their flu shot, and only about 10% have gotten the COVID booster. It's a gap that certainly reflects in the rising case numbers. With the increase in illnesses, what are primary care providers seeing on the ground? Providers like Dr. Mark Lewin from Atrium Health Primary Care Carmel Family Medicine are seeing a spike in demand for appointments. He notes a significant uptick in COVID-19 cases, which is consistent with the broader trends being reported. As we're in the midst of winter and recovering from holiday gatherings, what risks should people be aware of, Chloe? Atrium Health and other experts are emphasizing the compounded risks during the colder months. They're urging everyone to get tested and vaccinated and to take precautions, especially as these illnesses can spread more easily indoors and during gatherings. Chloe, we've heard experts predict that cases will continue to rise throughout January. Is this particularly true for any specific regions? Yes, southern states seem to be at the forefront of this wave. For instance, Pima County has reported a 48% weekly increase in flu cases, and overall, they've seen flu cases double compared to the five-year average. That's quite the leap. What kind of implications could these increases in respiratory illnesses have? The implications are broad-ranging, Grace. From the strain on healthcare systems and increased hospitalizations to the potential for schools and businesses to be affected. This could also lead to further reintroduction of mask mandates and other preventative measures in facilities nationwide. Speaking of preventative measures, what's the latest advice from the CDC for individuals? The CDC is very clear on the importance of staying home and seeking testing if you're experiencing symptoms like fever, sneezing, and coughing. There are also prescription pills available for early-stage flu or COVID that can reduce hospitalizations. Plus, the test-to-treat program ensures vaccines, tests, and treatments are available to everyone, insured or not. One last question for you. Chloe, how important is it for the community to stay informed and take precautions? It's absolutely critical, Grace. Knowing the prevalence of these viruses in your community can help individuals take appropriate precautions.
the elderly and those at higher risk need to be particularly careful and consider getting a COVID booster. Thank you for that in-depth analysis, Chloe. It certainly is a stark reminder of the need for vaccination and other health measures during this time. Here are some other headlines. In the political arena, President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump continue to draw upon the January 6 Capitol riot in contrasting ways. Biden underlines the uncertainty of America's democratic future, casting Trump as a significant threat to the nation's core values. He has sharpened his campaign's focus on condemning Trump's influence on democracy, taking his message to historically symbolic locations. Meanwhile, Trump diminishes the severity of January 6 events, vowing to pardon those charged in connection with the riots. Trump holds to the storyline of unjust oppression against himself and his followers, setting a defiant stance against perceived adversaries. These diverging narratives regarding January 6 are poised to be a central theme in the upcoming presidential race, as both candidates vie for public support with fervor. Switching to local news, Los Angeles County grapples with the somber issue of unclaimed dead, where thousands have departed with no one to claim their remains. Investigators from the public administrator's office, despite being understaffed, doggedly work to assign names and stories to the deceased. Anna Martirosian and her peers endeavor for three years per case, scouring every available resource to provide honor and closure to those forgotten. In international news, Gaza's families continue to suffer severe hardships amid the resurgence of conflict in the region. Confronted with a lack of basic resources, families like the Abu Jared cling to survival routines while living under the shadow of airstrikes and emerging health threats. Long queues for aid and dire living conditions are everyday realities, underscoring the urgent need for humanitarian intervention. Back to the United States, Washington's federal courthouse is inundated with January 6-related legal proceedings. Charged with over 1,200 alleged crimes, the courthouse juggles trials, pleas, and sentencings. The U.S. Justice Department remains steadfast in its dedication to bringing those responsible to justice, even as the strain on the judicial system grows and hundreds of assault incidents remain unresolved. Lastly, the country mourns following a heart-wrenching school shooting in Perry, Iowa, where a teenaged assailant ended the life of a sixth grader, wounded several others, and then turned the gun on himself. The incident, which took place just as students were returning from winter break, sees the community rallying during this period of grief as national attention turns to the small town shaken by this violence. That concludes our rundown of this morning's key headlines. In today's update, we're looking at a significant gesture by the U.S. Mint to honor one of America's most iconic figures. They've recently launched new commemorative coins celebrating the life and legacy of Harriet Tubman, the renowned abolitionist and human rights activist. To discuss the ins and outs of this exciting release, we have our specialist correspondent Ethan on the line. Ethan, could you tell us more about these coins and their significance? Absolutely, Grace. The Harriet Tubman Commemorative Coin Program is marking the bicentennial of Tubman's birth with a series of collector's items. There's a $5 gold coin, a $1 silver coin, and a half-dollar coin. Each piece is a tribute to a different stage of her life and the role she played, ranging from the Underground Railroad conductor to a Civil War scout and spy. I can imagine that each coin must be quite detailed. 
What can you tell us about the designs? They really are, Grace. For example, the silver dollar coin illustrates Tubman's daring missions on the Underground Railroad. It's a powerful image that captures her courage in helping others reach freedom. The half dollar, on the other hand, highlights her strategic contributions as a scout and spy, which is often a less remembered aspect of her work. And the gold coin? Well, Grace, the $5 gold coin represents a reflective Tubman in her later years. It's perhaps a more contemplative image, with Tubman looking towards the future, a poignant reminder of her lasting impact. That's quite moving. Now, Ethan, could you expand on how this coin release relates to the ongoing efforts to feature Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill? Certainly, Grace. There's been a push to replace Andrew Jackson with Harriet Tubman on the $20 note for several years now. While the Biden administration has pledged to move forward with this redesign, its progress remains somewhat unclear. These coins, I think, are a substantial, symbolic step toward acknowledging Tubman's rightful place in our nation's story, even as we await updates on the $20 bill. With all this attention on Harriet Tubman, Ethan, why has there been such a delay in updating the $20 bill? Well, Grace, several factors come into play, the foremost being security enhancements to prevent counterfeiting. This has pushed the priority of redesigning the $20 bill itself further down the list. Not to mention, there were political challenges and opposition during the Trump administration, which certainly did not help expedite the process. Would you say that these coins could influence the bill redesign efforts? It's a possibility, Grace. At the very least, they keep the conversation alive and hopefully apply some positive pressure. News sources like NPR, CNN, and 6ABC Philadelphia have brought considerable attention to the release, reporting on everything from the intricate designs to the proceeds supporting the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center and the Harriet Tubman home. How have the public and advocates been reacting to these coins? There's been a lot of enthusiasm and support, Grace. Advocacy groups like Women on Twenties see this as a reaffirmation of Tubman's significance. While the coins are a form of recognition, the ultimate goal remains to have her featured on the $20 bill. For now, these commemoratives are a meaningful, albeit interim, homage to her tremendous legacy. Well, it certainly sounds like these coins are more than just currency. They're a tribute to a true American hero. Ethan, thank you so much for bringing us this detailed perspective on the Harriet Tubman commemorative coins and what they represent in the larger context. My pleasure, Grace. It's always important to highlight such milestones in our country's journey towards honoring those who've shaped our history. That's all we have for now. Today's episode was made by Alexander King with GPT-4, GPT-3.5 Turbo, the Perplexity API, and the Google Cloud Text-to-Speech API. I hope you have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow, Alex.